Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Today, Mark Butler is back from Budget Nerd, and we're going to be talking about money and how we define ourselves with money and letting go of what other people think. We're going to talk about compare and despair, the whole consumption story and, st- story and so much more. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. There's a lot of really good money stuff in here, things for you to think about. And as always, these stories are meant to inspire and for you to aspire of what could be for you. Thanks so much for listening. Mark Butler, hello and welcome back. Hi, Corinne. Thanks as always for having me. Love having these conversations about money with you. And so today we're going to be talking about defining yourself with your money and letting go of what other people think. I think everybody needs to just sit back for a minute and think about times when they have seen a neighbor driving through the neighborhood in a new car or seen the neighbor posting pictures on Facebook of their amazing trip to Hawaii or renovating their house or wearing nice new shoes, whatever it is, and think about the feelings you have in that moment. If you're normal, most of us are normal. You know, you get this little, get this little like, uh, they must be doing really well or that's a nice car. I want a nicer car. Uh, do you think people feel that, Corinne? I think there's a lot more envy that goes on or, uh-huh. you know, the compare and despair. How come they can have that? Compare What's wrong with me? Yes. Yeah. Like they're better than me. I don't know if any of us, I, I don't think I've ever articulated it that way, but it's like, they're better than me because they drive a nicer car. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't articulate it that way because then you would immediately admit to yourself, well, that's a stupid thing to say. But you still feel it and um, and that's tragic. Well, it it's is. Tragic to, it's tragic to identify ourselves or, or sort of value ourselves based on other people's consumption. But Mark, culturally, right, we're programmed, buy this car and you're going to be happy. Yeah. Have this lavish lifestyle and you will be happy. Yeah. So when we see somebody else do that, whether a friend, a neighbor, whoever, and we see that, we think, wow, they have the happiness and I don't. And my story used to be is they must deserve it and I don't, or money doesn't happen to people like me. Yep. Right. These were all of my own stories that I had yep. where money doesn't care whether you're a good person or a bad person. Right. Right. It doesn't, money has no, money has no judgment. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it, it, money doesn't care. And we all do have interesting stories about what we deserve or don't deserve. Um, but what I think is interesting is, You've probably heard of the the uh, hedonic treadmill. Yes. Okay, so it's this idea 
I'm sure, I'm sure many of your listeners would articulate this better than I'm about to, but it comes down to this. The hedonic treadmill basically says we will continue to try to increase our happiness through, you know, experiencing new luxury, new comfort, new consumption. And initially the new, the new thing does spike our satisfaction, but very, very quickly and measurably our happiness slides back to wherever it was before the shiny new thing, new job, new income level, new house, new car, new clothes. All of these things have a temporary boost. They, they provide a temporary boost to our happiness and then our happiness settles back into whatever it was before. So it's, you know, it's the hedonic treadmill because you don't actually ever actually get anywhere. You, you can't, you can't ever consume your way or experience new, you know, new stimuli. You can't, those things can't provide sustained increases in happiness. Um, so the really interesting people are the people who just choose to get off the treadmill. Like they just say, well, the simple fact is I now know that even though that thing appeals to me and it's shiny and it's new and it would provide me a temporary spike in satisfaction and happiness, I know scientifically that I'll slide back to where I was. So I'm just going to opt out and I'm going to just keep driving the car I drive, um, acknowledging that the new one won't, won't bring me sustained happiness. Those are the most, to me, the most interesting people. And I don't, I don't know if I can even put myself in that group, but I know a few of those people and I find them fascinating. Mm -hmm. So if hedonic treadmill is like kind of too big of a word to grasp, I, like for me, the visual is the hamster wheel. Yes. Right? Yep. It's like you kind of get there thinking I'm going to get there, but it's just, you're constantly stuck in this hamster wheel and you're going nowhere and you go faster and faster and the wheel just goes faster and faster, but you still go nowhere. And it goes back to like, I always talk about what's the promise, right? What's the yep. promise of this purchase? What's the promise of this car? What's the prom What's the promise of it? And getting really clear, does it live up to the promise? Yes, because there are things that measurably decrease your happiness. Like, um, you know, if I drive a, if I drive a 20 year old car, that on its own doesn't make me unhappy, but if I'm constantly having to repair it or if I'm constantly having to worry about it breaking down, that does you know, create sustained impact, negative impact on my happiness and my mood. So it's not that the new car is increasing my happiness because it's new. It's increasing my happiness because it actually reduces tangible pain in my life. Um, so that's the promise. That's the promise of that purchase. But new and shiny for its own sake never delivers on what you think, you know, in the way that you think it will on its own. Oh, but Mark, what about the new and shiny? <laughs> I mean, are you saying that? Cause what if you can be really clear that you want to buy whatever it is and right now, let's just stick with cars just to keep it simple. Right? So you sure. want to buy this new car and you get excitement about it and you buy it and it's within the amount of money, the boundaries, right? That, mm -hmm. that work for you. So it's not like um, you're buying something and then there's regret afterwards because you can't afford it, but it's something that works within your boundaries mm -hmm. and you buy it and it's new and it, you know, that new car smell and you just get excited and, and you're happy. And it's, again, it's the car with the things that you want mm -hmm. in the car, right? The things that are important to you. Is it okay then to have new and shiny? 
Well, that's a great way to phrase it because I personally have no judgment. I mean, to me, there's not an okay or not okay. There's mm-hmm. just you getting honest with yourself about whether it will actually deliver sustained happiness, a sustained boost in happiness. And and I can't answer that question for anybody. The science tells us that beyond a basic level of kind of utility, whether it's in cars or homes or clothes or whatever, beyond a basic level of utility, there isn't really sustained happiness in increased consumption. Um, you've heard You've heard of the study that says, People beyond once they reach about seventy five thousand in income, there's no there's no measurable increase in happiness for income over and above seventy five thousand. So I, I never have like an okay or not okay. You know, I have clients who more than one, by the way. So in case anybody thinks happens to know some of my clients and thinks I'm referring to one specific person, but I have multiple clients who spend money on things that for me they they just hold no appeal whatsoever. Like a lot of clothing, for example, <laughs> that just holds no appeal to me. But I still don't have any value judgment on whether I think it's okay or not okay for them to do that. I'm just looking at them and saying, I wonder what would happen if you would, if you would figure out what feeling you're pursuing in the purchase of that thing and really ask yourself whether that thing is delivering the happiness that you plan for it to deliver. Because a lot of us, when we're pursuing that new feeling, we're not acknowledging the cost of the feeling and the cost is direct in the form of dollars, but it's indirect in the form of mental and emotional debt that we take on when we commit to being on the hamster wheel. So I hope that made sense, but this is the idea. The idea is if I'm a person who decides I really love cars and I love, and I want to buy a new car every two years or every three years, then I've, I've created mental and emotional debt in that every two or three years, I have to shop for a new car. I have to make that decision about which car to buy, decide what I can afford, um, sell the old car. Uh, all of this is stuff that we have to think about. But if I'm a person who's just like, you know what, I'm just not, the car's not my thing. I don't think the car's going to deliver sustained happiness over and above what I'm experiencing. So I'm going to drive my 2000 Honda Civic until the thing absolutely keels over dead because I just, that, that just simplifies my life until it doesn't, you know, when we talked about the needing repairs, et cetera. But in the meantime, my life is so simple. If you, if you choose to be on the hamster wheel with consumption, you're adding complexity to your complexity to your life without a guarantee of increased happiness from that complexity. So if you're a, if you're a clothes person, great that you're a clothes person. I'm all for that. But now you have to have like a clothes maintenance workflow, (laughs) you know, where it's like, here's my flow. I go shopping every Thursday. Um, I buy stuff. It has to go somewhere. I've got this closet. I've got that closet. I've got to have an organization system for the clothes. I have to have a system for deciding when to get rid of the clothes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's like, there's this cost beyond just the money of owning the stuff. And you really got to ask yourself whether the cost creates the happiness um, that makes the cost worth it. So I'm not a minimalist and I don't want to give that impression. I'm not like, oh yeah, I have, you know, one pair of flip-flops, one pair of jeans, one t-shirt. And that's not me either. But I'm saying the question is worth asking because the answer is interesting for each one of us individually. 
Absolutely. And when we talk about defining ourselves with our money, it's what permissions do we need to give ourselves? You know, what is it we want? And the other side about this happiness thing is, I think there's that promise that the thing is going to make us happy, but it really comes from inside. Mm-hmm. So, and really, instead of it's, it's kind of like with emotional eating, overeating of my, and like a lot of my listeners will understand this of, oh, this third bowl of ice cream, I deserve it. It's going to make me feel better is really a lie. I mean, we can do the same thing in purchases. This car is going to make me feel better and I'm going to disregard how much of a debt it's going to put me in. Yes. Or or even if you have the cash to pay for it of, like you've said in previous shows, where could those dollars be spent elsewhere? Right. And getting really clear. Right. And the perception is, as we look at other people and their consumption, because we're only aware of the consumption and we're not aware of how the cost is impacting them personally, we have this skewed view of it, it. It's what creates this skewed idea that consumption is happiness because we see the neighbor driving down the street in the new car and it looks shiny and we know it smells good in there and it's got the features that you know we don't have in our 2000 Honda Civic. But what we're not acknowledging is with very rare exceptions – that car is financed and that payment there's no there's no moral issue here i'm not anti car payment i'm acknowledging the math of a car payment is now i have to think about my car payment and that car payment creates a drag on my options like what else could i do with that money and that person is experiencing that as they drive down the street in their new car as they get on the plane to go to hawaii they're experiencing that thing it's not a bad thing but we have to remind ourselves that they're incurring those costs in that extra consumption. So we have to be checking ourselves as we think that their consumption is making them really happy because we usually forget about its costs. And a lot of people will look at consumption and they'll say, you know, if Jane is driving down the street in her new Beamer, Jane and John must be doing really well. Like, wow, they must be doing really well. Well, I've worked in a lot of people's finances, the details of their finances. And let, <laughs> and let me let me tell you that the, the whole thing about the Joneses is real. It, it's tragically real. But what you can trust is, again, with very few exceptions, if they live in your neighborhood, their household income, their household consumption is probably roughly on par with yours. And the reason you can trust that reality is if they could afford more home – they would be in more home. So you can kind of, based on that reality, you can say, okay, if they could get into a bigger house, they'd be in a bigger house. So they can't because they're normal and they're probably mostly maxed out on what they can consume. So I know roughly what their mortgage is. I know roughly what their car payments are. And then I know roughly what they're spending on groceries because it's going to be within the same, you know, kind of range that all of us spend on groceries. They may be on the high side or the low side, but they're in the range. So what you can trust is that as you see that new car driving down the street, one of two things is true. Either they are that rare person. For example, they're the person in my neighborhood that owns a Tesla, but he he could very quickly, very easily move out of this neighborhood because he's living so far beneath his means. So they're either that exception or they're the rule, which is they're mostly maxed out. They're not setting aside a lot of money for retirement. They lay awake at night worrying about their money. They fight with their partner over money. Um, And that shiny thing that they're driving down the street in is, in most cases, 
creating as much stress as it's removing. So when you see that person, instead of feeling shame and like unworthiness, like, oh, they're better than me, they deserve it. I would actually encourage you to just feel compassion for that person because not judgment, not like, oh, I'm smarter than them. I'm better than them. Just, just reach in and feel compassion for that person because the reality is if they're normal, they're struggling and the shiny car is not helping, it's hurting. You know, and that goes back to how we're talking about defining yourself with money, because if you're defining yourself by the car that you drive or the house that you live in, you're really rooted in shame because yes. you're trying to prove you're hustling for your worthiness. And again, people don't know what I wrote down was the whole consumption story. Yes. They just see the front in front of the curtain, but they don't really know what's going on beyond, behind it. Right. right. And it's even like, you know, um, my daughter's going to turn 16. So there's a lot of talk about cars and what families are going to be doing kind of mm -hmm. in my sphere. And so some families will say, oh, we can lease this and it's only going to be $99 a month. And then later on, you find out that their insurance has gone up like $300 a month. In addition to that 99, which then turned into $150 lease payment and then all these additional costs. So yeah. sometimes we try to convince ourselves, we underestimate, and I think you've said this before, how yeah. much something costs. And then later on, and we make these decisions that have a longer term ramification. Yes. And, and that, and, and that's true over and over and over again, because all of the pressure in our world is toward consumption or the vast majority of pressure in our world is toward consumption and away from delayed gratification. We're, we're not, we're not really creating societal pressure to delay gratification and, and congratulate that and, and reward that. Um, cause it's hard to, it's hard to see delayed gratification. It's a lot easier to see instant gratification. Um, but that's why, I've, I've made it a goal for myself. I'm working on this. This is ongoing to feel absolutely nothing about other people's consumption. But, you know, I just mentioned compassion, which I think is, it's a good thing to try to feel about everybody all the time. If you know, we can all work toward that. But if you realize when people talk about other people's consumption, they'll usually talk about it either in an envious way, which comes from their shame. So it's like, Oh, well, wouldn't it be nice? I wonder if that'd be great. You know, so it's that sort of talk. Or it's outright like gossip, kind of like, I know, I, I know they can't afford that. I mean, who do they think they are? I know they're driving around. That's a lease. They should be ashamed of themselves. So there's judgment. My goal is to be so at home in who I am and in what I'm trying to accomplish in my life with my family and in my business that when I see other people's consumption, I don't feel anything about it. It just doesn't even like register with me because I'm in my business, not in theirs, right? That's my goal. I think it's a good goal. I'm working on it. If other people think it's a good goal, they can work on it too. But I feel like it'll be the ultimate evidence that I'm okay with me if I really feel totally neutral about how you're spending your money because I'm working on me, not you. Well, you're no longer defining yourself with your money. Right. When you're working towards that goal, it's it's what is it? What is it that I want? What are the values that we have? What are our family's financial goals? What are the things that are important to us? And it's not about defining yourself by these cars or these purchases or your money. It's really getting down to what are your values and how, what's the outcome that you want to create? Right. Right. Comparison wrecks everything all the time. 
It's the thief of happiness. It is the thief of happiness. It truly is. And, and so don't do it. Work on not comparing. Work on not comparing. I, I, I want to, you know, I aspire. There are people I aspire to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, they inspire me and they set a great example for me. But in that, in that inspiration, I'm not comparing myself to them. I'm not saying I'll never be like them. You know, I'll never do what they do or they're so good at this. I'm not good at that. It's just like I just I'm just so impressed by that person and what they're doing. I want I want to be that. I want to do that. But I bring that up now because consumption plays no part in that. Unless I have I have detail like full knowledge of the whole consumption picture. For example, I think I might have told this story before, but I just loved it so much. I have a realtor friend who was taking the whole family to Hawaii, kids, grandkids, like the whole crew was going to Hawaii. But I had the whole consumption picture and he had changed financial habits. He had he had saved up for Hawaii in full view of his other priorities. Hawaii was paid for. It wasn't a strain on the finances. So because I had the whole picture, I could be really inspired by that. Not envious, not judgmental, not critical, just, just like, wow, they, they did that. I love that. I would like to do that. I'm cool too. Like I'm good and I want to model that same behavior, but only I can only do that because I had the full picture and you usually don't. So that's why I'm working on trying to feel nothing about people's consumption. Well, and then when you don't have the full picture, just know that the picture may not be what it seems. And, and so, and I always find it fascinating when you kind of learn more about, and people don't like to talk about money like I do. I love to talk about it because again, it's that whole consumption story that you get. And the other side is that in the show, I talk a lot about, you know, if this is possible for them, what is possible for you? And it's, it's in that view of aspiration versus comparison, right? You know, because I do think we can learn from other people's stories. So you saw your friend doing things a certain way and it's like, Hey, you know, Hawaii doesn't have to be this negative thing. And even if you want to go and spend a ton of money, how do you, what are you going to do to create that? Right. Which right. is not, that's a very compassionate way. And it's really rooted in wholehearted living versus the scarcity thing of, well, I'm just not going to worry about it. The money will come. I'm going to put my head in the sand and I'll just cr- charge it on a credit card. We're going to go. And the yep. whole time you're stressed, or yep. maybe when you come home, you're stressed because now you get the bills and you're like, how are we going to do this? They're stressed the whole time for the record. Cause I've had them tell, I've had people tell me, um, like, yeah, you know, we do the Hawaii thing every year. We do the big trip every year and every year, even as we're doing it, it's like, we're having the time of our lives, but there's the voice in my mind, in the back of my head. Every time I swipe that card on the trip for that cool excursion or that, you know, the helicopter ride, whatever it is like, Oh, I'm going to have to pay this off. Mm-hmm. And I mean, talk about sucking the joy out of the experience. That I mean, that's a guaranteed way to suck the joy out of that experience, and, and it's tragic. So what what I wish for people is that we could remove the shame from conversations around money and be very open. Because let's face it, you know, you and I live in the same. If you and I live in the same neighborhood, we go to the grocery store, we pay the same amount for a head of lettuce. So there's no reason to be like secretive like well how much do you spend on groceries well it's like we're shopping at the same store mm-hmm. okay maybe you buy pop tarts and i don't so we're you know plus or minus 100 bucks a month or 300 bucks a month we're 
you know, there's going to be some, some variation there, but what are we hiding from in this conversation? What, like, why can't we have a conversation about like, Hey, here's what we're trying to do in our finances right now. What are you trying to do in your finances? I do acknowledge that you can't have that conversation with just any old person. There has to be a trust and a respect that, 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 that information is respected and, you know, shared in the right way and in the right context. I get that, but I have, I, for example, I have a week with my little brother. We're close. We don't live in the same state. So we have a scheduled call every week to talk about our work, talk about our families. And we both open up our finances during that call and we'll like go through it. I'll be like, Hey, how are you doing on this? I'll be like, well, this and that, you know, this is going on with our utilities or this is what we're trying to do with groceries right now. And I'll, and I'll say, yeah, here's what we've been doing with groceries. We've been higher than we want to be. Here's what we're working on. It's just this very casual dialogue about the truth of our spending. And we both learn from it. We both get some confirmation that we're doing fine in some areas. And we both get confirmation that there are areas where we could make happiness gains, not just cost savings, because those aren't guaranteed to be the same happiness gains as we learn from each other's finances. I wish everybody could have that kind of, you know, at least one or two of those kinds of relationships. I probably have, I probably have three of those in my life where I would open, you know, any aspect of my finances to them. I wish everybody had that. It is so important because again, going back to this whole idea about money and shame, which people, my listeners have just loved that show that we did and I'll link it in the show notes. So if you didn't listen, you can click on that link and go back to it. But this idea that, you know, there's so much shame around money, shame loves secrecy. And so Mm. when you don't talk about it, it grows. And when we can talk about it, and again, you've made a very important component. It has to be with people who've earned the right to hear your story. Yeah. You know, there has to be trust built. You don't just share it with anybody, but you start discussing money and, and then it's just, it's a math thing. And you, and you can look at it and then you can look at like what you and your brother are doing where you have this dialogue. Oh yeah, you're owning it, right? Like, oh, I just looked at my numbers and our, our groceries are a bit higher than we want to do. What are the things that we know? And you check in, like we've talked about also the checking in piece, how important that is because now you're just having, it's not good or bad, which is something that you've been striving to point out. It's just, am I living in, in alignment with mm-hmm. the life that I want or am I living out of alignment? And if I am, what tweaks do we need to make to get back here? That, that, that right there, Corinne, in my opinion, is a formula for relief and happiness and peace on a scale that a lot of your listeners have no idea is possible. That simple habit that you, you just laid out. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How, how could I ever convince people to just give that like a 90-day experiment? It'd be amazing. It, it would be because when you can actually, like, no matter what, it's the growth mindset. Carol Dweck's been on the show. I'll link her shows into the, the show notes as well. But it's the growth mindset where when you make a mistake, you don't let it define you. You look at it and you understand it and you go, okay, what can I tweak? Because then if I want to move forward. And again, when you own your story, right, then shame can't exist. And it's even just owning it with you. You don't have to stand on top of a rooftop and say, oh my gosh, I have $6,000 in credit card debt. I'm a bad person, right? You go, okay, I have $6,000 in credit card debt. Is this what I want to continue? Yeah. You know, and what are ways that I can pay it off? And you're going to want to, like, I know when I am feeling shame, 
you know, I want to just hide away. That's kind of one of my go-to strategies is to hide away. The other one's to become inner gladiator. But so I want to hide away and like not look at it. Well, that doesn't help you get anywhere. So looking at, okay, $6,000, where can I get an extra $100 a month to maybe pay it off? And just start doing that. And then you have those small steps of success. And then you may find more money and be able to maybe go work extra and create more income to pay it off. When, when I was a quick story, when I was in um, college, I've always had this rule about never carrying credit card debt, like my dad ingrained it in my head. And it's not because he was good at that. Um, it was from his own errors. And so I had gone off to England my senior year, right before school started, and I come back and I think I had about $450 of credit card debt, which for me was a lot of money back then. Mm-hmm. And this is 1994, 1993. And uh, so... I needed to, so I picked up, I was, I would substitute coach this master swimming team and got paid, I think $10 an hour, which was amazing money back then for me. And so that's what, 45 hours, no, 48 hours. I don't know, however many, however much money. So say 50 hours that I had to work extra. Um, and maybe I didn't work that many extra hours because I was, I had another job, but I, I did work some extra shifts. And my boyfriend, who's now my husband said, you know, you can just borrow the money from me. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> I am going to do this. So for a month, I suffered. Right. I worked a lot of extra shifts, picked up as much as I could because I want to get this paid off. And that's the only time I paid finance charges on a credit card because that was like such an ingrained value of mine. Right. And, and I did it and I learned from it. So it was, you know, but again, I just kept it very and I didn't realize what I was doing. It was kind of like, okay, this is a math problem. How am I going to solve it? Right. I know my dad's told me this is the way to follow. This is the way to live, even though he never lived that way. This is the way to live. I didn't do it, right? But instead of beating myself up, I just held compassion and I said, okay, I don't want to have credit card debt. That goes against, again, I'm out of alignment with my values. What do I need to do to get back there? Fortunately for me, I had it paid off by the next month. And I did pay, you know, I don't know what I paid in interest, but I paid some interest and I was done. And that was a great lesson from falling down. I love how you keep saying make it a math problem. You'll know that you're being kind enough to yourself and honest enough with yourself when it is a math problem that you work on actively. So you're not, you're not, you're not in entitlement. You're not in like, but and you're also not in shame. You're not in either one of those. You're just saying this is not how I want to be doing things. I can see the math on the piece of paper in front of me. What's the process for solving the math problem I'm dealing with here? And when you get there you find that you can create this amazing momentum. I'm in a phase right now. I'm going to give you credit here on your show from conversations we've, um, we've had just with, with your general habits that you've described to me about your money. It's, it's inspired me. And I recently told my wife, I'm like, listen, I'm going to be 37 in April. What if we paid off the house in three years? She's like, great, let's do it. Pay off the house. And I was like, okay, but I actually have no idea how. I have a vague idea how to get my mortgage is like, I think my total load on my house is about 280. I was like, I can come up with a pretty reasonable plan to get about 200 of that 280 to go away. I don't know what I'm going to do for the other 80. But the magic of this kind of focus and reducing things to them to being the math problem that they are is once you start on this math problem, your brain becomes tuned in to how to continue continually improve the solution 
And you're like, wait, I can slide over another 50 bucks here. I can slide over another 50 bucks there. Now my snowball's growing. My progress is accelerating. And you get where you wanted to go a lot faster than you even realized was possible because you've never experienced the real power of focus on your money without like baggage, without shame baggage slowing you down. So it's a math problem. Just start on it and you, you shock yourself. It, it is so amazing because when you're, when instead of like shame is I'm not enough, right? I don't have enough, enough, enough. I'm, it's the lacking. And then your brain can't figure out math problems, right? Like that's when right. I can get into funky math. I can look at a spreadsheet and go, wait a second. I'm making less money than I made last year. I mean, this literally happened when I have been in shame and I've been looking at Excel spreadsheets. I can't see the numbers, Mark. And like at, yep. in December, I was looking at my numbers going, wait, these numbers are off. We're behind. Mm-hmm. Right. And then later on, I can't remember how many weeks and what happened. I looked and I was like, no, I'm actually $10,000 ahead. Right. And, and, but it was the same numbers. And, so when you're in shame, your brain just can't work because you start to go into fear as well. Yeah. And when you can look at it from a math and then you start trucking along and then you start to go, okay, well, what are my choices? And the other side about it is that when I've had big life goals and I would see friends on Facebook going to Hawaii or going to Europe and all of that stuff, it was really simple for me because I knew what my goals were and I knew that if I made those choices, I wouldn't attain my goals. So when you are in that I'm enough and I'm not de- being defined by money, you don't have it. Those kinds of things just don't affect you as much. Right. And if I say, Hey, I do want to go to Hawaii, then it's about, okay, well, where, what am I willing? Like you talk about, where am I willing to take these dollars from to go put that there? Right. So I just had this experience recently. Um, we remodeled our house, I guess, 14 and a half years ago. And it's a really massive, I mean, we took everything down to the studs mm. and um, doubled the size of our house. And <clears throat> anyway, so it was a massive project and I learned a lot about like what choices, where do you want to spend, where are you going to get value and where are you not? And, you know, some areas going cheap, but cheaper and then some areas really putting some money in. So the one area that got left undone and partly because, and here's where I can, again, just the language that we use, I can say we ran out of money, right? But that's a very scarcity thing. Mm-hmm. We could have, we could have put it on debt or whatever, but we chose not to. Like we decided we had spent enough, right? Here was how much money we had allotted. And we, so we decided that we'd spent enough. And so we chose not to do our fireplace at the time. Mm-hmm. We said, that's a project we'll come back to in a year, right? So this is 2001, fall of 2001. And um, we'll save some more money, get the fireplace done. Well, <laughs> the fireplace got done this Monday, 2016. <laughs> and some of it just had to do with like you you know early on i mean it was just more of a cash flow thing and then in recent years it's just been a time thing and trying to figure it out and wanting and then for me i get really stuck in that's really permanent so i get stuck into perfection which is the birthplace of shame not a good place to be you know don't want to make the wrong mistake with a large sum of money right but fortunately there's been saving that's been going along and because uh, I have money automatically every month save for something like that. So I've had a lot of years to save. So I had opportunities to choose. And so we first were going to get a pellet stove. 
And um, listeners, I've got what I have and I really like what I have. So you don't need to email me about how I did it wrong. <laughs> but um, <laughs> first, we're going to do a pellet wood, a pellet stove. And we went to the place that was recommended by somebody I really trust and found out the information, said, no, we're not interested in gas inserts. We want a pellet stove. And I was kind of ready to buy on the spot. And my husband goes, well, let's just think about it. So we went home. And then I, the one thing I kind of wanted, Mark, I wanted like a... Um, a, a timer where I could set a schedule so that I could wake up and it would already be heating. I didn't know if that was possible, but I was like, oh, that would be so nice, you know, instead of walking out to a cold because my house has been freezing. We have, until this year, we just wouldn't turn on the heat. Well, freezing, I live in California, but <laughs> my house would be like 58 degrees. You know, I'd wear like three layers of clothes and I was, I've had it. I'm done with that. So, and some of it is, you know, money, reducing money. Some of it's just being sustainable and green and that kind of things. Mm-hmm. So, I started looking up, I found this other place, this other company, and they had more of that programmable thing. So I wound up calling them and I talked to them about a pellet stove and they said, well, and they started asking me questions and, you know, are you handy? Pellet stoves can break down. Like, well, how much does that cost? You know, and it's like, so every service was going to be about $250. They needed more maintenance. And I'm like, wow, we're really not those kind of people, you know, but I said, but look, I really want a lot of heat. And he goes, well, you could go to a wood-burning stove. I'm like, okay, well, I guess we'll go to a wood-burning stove because we want a lot of heat. We want to lay off, you know, pg e And so I was talking to my family about, okay, telling, explaining to my husband why wood-burning was better than a pellet. And my young daughter, she's 14, she looked at me and she's like, we are not those people where we have to do all this maintenance every month and things break because we're not handy people. I have to hire out for that. So that made sense. And then when they came to measure out my, my fireplace... Um, I said, well, you know, financially, which one is cheaper? Like, you know, a a wood burning stove or a gas line? And he's like, well, right now the way it's kind of a wash unless you have free wood. Well, I don't have free wood. Still maintenance, right? And so finally I was like, okay, we're going to do, if if gas is cheaper and it's cheaper than running through the whole house, then let's just go with this. It fits within my lifestyle, right? Turn on a switch, be done with it. Have a pretty fire. I like that. <laughs> and so, yep. anyways, I you know was going through this process, and my husband's like, "Well, why? If it's a fake fire, why are we having it?" He didn't really like that idea, but I was like, "I want warmth and I want ease, and I don't want to have to clean up another thing." You know, yep. so I got really clear about what it was that I wanted. So when I went into, and then I wanted a new fireplace. I hated the brick that we had. He really liked it. I hated it. And, and it was funny because, of course, everything I liked is like always the more expensive thing. And um. But I got the things that I really, really loved for the space that I have. And I'm looking at it now. And I love it. I love coming in and turning it on. It's not that cold anymore, unfortunately. So I'm kind of like, this is a little frivolous, but I'm going to enjoy it for this week at least. <laughs> <laughs> and But I love it, right? And, I, and, and you know, I don't want to say it brings me joy or happiness, but I'm really, really thankful. I'm thankful to be warm, right? I'm thankful that I'm using less BTUs. And, and I'm thankful for this pretty space that I have there. And I'm thankful that I was able to save the money for it all these years. I mean, talk about delayed gratification, what, 15, 14 and a half years later. So, but that's just a long story, like kind of what we were talking about earlier of, you know, I got really clear about what was it that I wanted and what were the parameters of our family, you know, because we could have even gone, you know, really turbo expensive. There's all this really cool, but it doesn't fit within our house, right? So I got stuff that were lined up with our home. And with our values, but it's not about defining who I am, right? It, it's just about, I want to be warm 
and I want something pretty there. And now I've got a place to really hang my Christmas stockings next year. (laughs) The beauty of it is a couple lessons here for all of us. One is that you didn't say no to the fireplace 14 years ago. You just said not yet. And Mm -hmm. we can, you can say not yet to anything and everything that you want to purchase. And it's a lot less painful to say not yet than it is to say no. Good point. Because usually people will be like, we can't afford it. And that's a purely shame-driven thing to say. We can't afford it. What does that even mean? What you're, the, the, the more clear thing to say is, in light of all of our other needs and priorities and, and other desires, we don't, we're not choosing to do that right now. We're not choosing to do it right now. We can choose to do that later. The great thing about choosing to do something later is that your, your decision-making process will usually improve and you'll get more clear on what you really want from the consumption so you'll consume better. So not only will you be in a better financial position, but you will, um, you'll, you'll make a better purchase, a purchase you're happier with. Have you ever noticed the people who seem to always be getting the good deals? Now, there's two kinds of people who are always getting the good deals. They're the people who shop obsessively, so the, the value of the good deals evap- evaporate because, you know, you're still spending a lot of money on all those good deals. But then there are the other people who they seem to be, they seem to be doing really well. And then they're like, Oh yeah, I got this new thing. I got it for like whatever. And they, they get it for some amount of money that seems crazy small. It's because they're people who are really good at saying not yet and just sort of keeping an eye on that purchase. And then when the time comes, it's like, that's the one I want. I'm good. And that's the price I want to get it for. And then they get this deal that you didn't think was possible. It's because they said, not yet. So it's a really powerful principle that, that you, you teach through that story. Well, thank you. I love that not yet because, and that's exactly what happened. We knew we would do it. There wasn't shame and it was just, and I made a very big decision because I wanted to have, we did a lot of built-ins and I just decided to do a built-in TV center entertainment you know, thing at that time. And the big reason I wanted it to be built in is I didn't want to deal with dust and cobwebs and the dirt, you know, those dust balls. Mm-hmm. And yep. I wanted built in like, so I chose that, that our money was going to go there versus the fireplace. And, and again, some of it's probably not the bit, like if I understood that our fireplace was a window and letting in a lot of cold air, probably one of the reasons our house was so cold, I didn't understand that. So I apologize for those who are into, you know, being green. I didn't know. I do the best that I can with what I know. And, um, but now I've got a nice fireplace and, and it was interesting because the, in California, you now have to have these grills over the glass and, Mm. you know, of course the, the grill that come, you know, the, the standard one, I couldn't stand it. And part of me goes, Corinne, really? You know, so I did pay a bit more money for the one that, because I have more kind of mission style cabinets in my house. And so that matched that, but I thought, you know what, this lines with the design and, I just, I just, I kept looking at it and I kept going, nope. And, and that one was a little bit harder for me because there's this, there's this idea of, well, you know, beauty's not necessary. It's not functioning. But I also thought about, okay, if this is something I'm going to have for the next 25 years, what's really going to be the true cost? And if I'm looking at it, hating it, and then I have to, and then I go rebuy it, I'm actually spending more money. So, and then I thought about, okay, where, what are the things that are really important to me? And that was what happened to be one of them. My daughter was so funny. She goes, mom, I'm really glad you went with that other grill, the grill that we have. It's, it's way better. <laughs> so the thing is, when you do these things in the, at the right time and in the right way, it's like you, that you don't, 
you don't have buyer's remorse. There's not kind of residual shame around a purchase when you've waited for it, you've considered it, you've thought about your alternatives. It, it's it's the path to it's the path to shame free kind of consumption mm-hmm. when you know and and still going all the way back to that hedonic treadmill. It's not that we think that the new fireplace is going to transform our happiness. It's just a nice little perk that we enjoy looking at, gives us some utility and gives you no, there's no shame or guilt around it because you, you bought it in the right time at the right, uh, at at the right time and in the right way. Mm -hmm. And, and the other side is that I'm also just not interested. I mean, my daughter said that, but she's, I'm interested in her opinion. This is also the house that she lives in Mm -hmm. and she has a good sense of style and she's got a really good eye. But I'm not interested. Like I haven't posted it on Facebook. I'm not interested in other people's opinions, mm-hmm. and I, that it's also because I'm not using money to define myself. Mm-hmm. Right. This was something that had to do with warmth and how can I make the space a bit more inviting, right? And now I look at that space and it's fun. I look at it, I'm like, oh, it's so pretty. I really, really like it. It was the you know the, like, the last piece for that great space that we have. Of finishing and completion. And so like what we talked about earlier when we first opened the show is defining yourself with money and letting go of what other people think. I mean, for me, that has been a huge work in progress of letting go of what other people think. Yep. Yep. And good for you because I think that's where the real happiness is. It's like feeling compassion for yourself, feeling compassion for others consuming those things that you're actually excited to consume on their own merit, you know, for, with your own values mm-hmm. and not needing validation uh, from anybody about the consumption that you're choosing or not choosing. You're doing your thing and they're doing their thing and you're happy for them and you're happy for you. Yeah. Well, Mark, this has been great again. So thank you so much for coming back and talking about money. I love it. It's fun. Thank you. See you. Hello, hello, hello. I'm back. And I just love talking about money. I really do. And I hope that this show inspires you to be willing to talk about money. Because like I said in the show, that shame loves secrecy. And when we have this belief that talking about money is rude or we shouldn't talk about it, it allows for that shame to grow because we create those stories. And it's usually about where we go to, I'm not enough and they are so much more and comparing and despairing. So when you can find out, find people and build relationships, cultivate relationships where you can talk about people. I mean, talk about money, not talk about people, excuse me, but talk about money like Mark does. And remember, he said he has about three people in his life that he talks about it. You don't need the 5,000 Facebook friends to talk about money with. It can be one person, two people. And here's the thing with those three, I hope you're on your own list of people to talk to within yourself because you have to be willing to look at the numbers like we've talked about. And going with owning the story is also choosing the language that you use. That is so important. Is your language scarcity driven or is it rooted in compassion and wholeheartedness of wholehearted living is about being enough, having enough. It doesn't mean that you don't want for more or you may not want something new but it's being grounded in yourself, in your life. So when we say we can't afford it versus right now I'm choosing not to spend my money there. Notice how that feels different. For me, when I hear can't afford, 
partly because of old triggers from family of origin, I get really tight versus when I say, okay, right now I'm choosing not to spend my money there. And I feel open and free and like my muscles relax. So just pay attention. What may be a trigger word for me may not be a trigger word for you and vice versa, but really pay attention to the language that you use because the words that you use are so important. And whether it's with Carol Dweck and mindset where she says the thoughts that you believe can create the results in our life. So you have her research from Stanford or you just go test it out. I just invite you. I know from the work that I do with my clients, it's so important. So be really careful or deliberate with the words that you use. You know, this idea of running out versus I choose. So choose carefully. And then the other things is that when you know yourself, when you really know yourself and love yourself for you, it's easy to let go of what other people think. So when we're defining ourselves by our purchases, the money in our life, it's because we're concerned about what other people think. But when you can really love yourself and have compassion for yourself and for others, it's easier to let go of what other people think. The antidote of shame is compassion and empathy. And one of the attributes of empathy is perspective taking. And that goes back to what Mark and I were talking about, the whole consumption story. Make sure you know the whole consumption story and you're not going to be able to know it of other people's personal finances. But when you go into, oh, they have that and we don't, we can't afford it. Remind yourself, you don't have the whole consumption story. You don't know what's really going on. Are you living in line with your values? And if that is something that you want that you don't have and may not have the resources to have, then it comes down to math. So it becomes a math problem and then start to creatively look at how to solve that if that is something that you want. For me, it could be okay. Maybe I don't drink coffee if, you know, for a number of weeks and save that money, save those $5.46 for whatever the purchase may be. And it's a, it becomes a choice. Where do I choose? Or maybe it's I go and work more, right? In your life, you get to look at, okay, what are the aspects? What are the different situations that can make that work? College is a huge thing that's coming up for a lot of parents. It's really cost prohibitive for a lot of families, especially when colleges are between 33000 for a public education to sixty five, seventy five thousand a year for private schools. And it triggers a lot of shame. And I had Zach Bissonette on the show. He wrote a great book. I'm always recommending it. And I will put this in the show notes, Debt-Free University. And he talks about that looking. There's many, many different ways to do it. And there's many ways for pay for college. But getting really clear beyond the promise of what you're going to get and what is it that you're going to get. Okay. And finally, when you learn about yourself, it's not because you've never made a mistake. We usually learn most from our falling down moments, from those times that we struggled and things were hard. So when you learn about you and your values, it really comes from making mistakes. So I invite you not to judge yourself. And instead, when you fall down, when you make a mistake, and as you go to stand back up, don't beat yourself up, have compassion for yourself, and then go and reflect, look at it. Look at what is going on inside. Why, what led you to here? How are you maybe off your path or how did you fall down? And if these aren't the results that you want, what can you do to create different results? 
but do it from a grounded place. And it has to be from a compassionate place because we, while we can use fear or shame to control people, and that may be hardwired into us, it really comes down to it's not long-term. It's not sustainable. And so compassion is a huge motivator for change. And that's one of the things that Kristen Neff from University of Texas, Dr. Kristen Neff has talked about. She's a compassion researcher. So when you know yourself from, and you learn it from when you fall down, you, I've learned my values when things that were so important to me felt violated. And I found that, oh, here's somebody that's not loyal. And I'm like, wow, that's really bothers me. Loyalty is a huge value of mine. I didn't know that until was violated by with loyalty, you know, people who weren't loyal or situations that weren't loyal. So understanding that a lot of times it comes from those moments where we fall down. And then finally, on getting other people's input. And this has been the fascinating thing about my own life is that, you know, I used to be an approval whore. And I'm a recovering approval whore. And so it used to be I wanted everybody else's opinion all the time. And what's interesting is now, like when I do decide whose opinion, because I know whose opinion matters and whose insights that I really respect and I want, I'll ask them and they may not want to give it because maybe they don't like it. And uh, I'm currently having my website redesigned. So I've been asking some opinions and I said, no, just tell me what you don't like. That's fine. Because here's the thing. They're going to give me their information and then I'm going to decide, does that resonate with me? Is that in something that's important to me? Because that's from their perspective. How is it from mine? So when you know yourself and you can be really grounded in who you are, you can get feedback and it doesn't have to mean that you change directions. When I was an approval whore, I would be like, oh, this person said this. Okay, I must go this way. This person said this, so I'm going to go this way. This person said this, I must go this way. And I was like lost in this maze. And now instead, I can get feedback from people go, okay, let me think about that. And really think, okay, what really resonates for me? What rings true for me? What is it that I think? What is it that I'm trying to put out there? And there's some things I'm like, oh my gosh, great. That was great. I didn't see that. I had a blind spot. And some things I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. Thank you so much. But that's not the direction I want to go in. So thanks so much for listening today. And a huge shout out to Mark Butler. And go to howshereallydoesit.com and sign up. There's a community that's building there. I'm launching, I'm going to be launching a new website or maybe by the time that this is posted, the new website will be up. So I'm really excited. And remember, money is math. Let's take the drama and shame out of it and practice compassion because that's the antidote. And it doesn't mean you sit there and lie to yourself or rationalize, but you really get real and look at it that way and to help you create the life that you want. And when you can stop defining yourself with money and letting go what what other people think, you really get to live this more authentic life. And it's beautiful. So thanks so much. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide